Welcome to Career Buzz, Canada's unique radio conversation that empowers lives, enriches careers, and energizes organizations. Today on your show, forget about retirement. What's your next adventure? Two people in later careers share their stories of balancing meaningful work, volunteer, and family time. Hi, I'm Mark Franklin, practice leader of a team of professional career counselors at CareerCycles.com and co-founder of One Life Tools. I'm pleased to be your host today on Career Buzz. Thanks for tuning in this morning. At age 66, David Sorensen started his encore career by completing a master's degree in counseling. Now, after career number one as an ordained chaplain and career number two as a counselor, David shares his journey and transition toward balancing life, work, and calling. Hear David Sorensen's retirement reboot in the second half of today's show. But first... Canada is a resource-rich country, and mining is a leading industry. But how can we do resource extraction ethically? Marilyn Spink's career revolves around sustainable minerals and improved corporate governance. She's an award-winning professional engineer and board director, consultant, advisor, and principal at GS Group. Marilyn Spink, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. What are you liking about your career these days? It is so diverse. I'm doing a lot of different things and I have a, I'm kind of moving towards being more in governance and leadership positions sort of from the engineering side of things. Nice. And, and so what are all the different hats you're wearing? What do you do in a typical, typical week? Yeah, I feel my worlds are colliding. I'm doing public speaking. I sort of thought of as a thought leader in the mining space and the project delivery space. I'm advising in terms of capital project delivery. Uh, mining is a bit soft right now. Uh, I do a lot of coaching with international engineering graduates. I'm doing guest lectures at uh, uh, some of the university programs in project management and design ethics. So lots of different hats. Yes. Um, what would you say skills or strengths that you use on a regular basis to be successful doing what you're doing? I think at this stage in my career right now, it's about inspiring other things, other people to do the right thing and to really think, uh, use design thinking in what they do. And I, I think it's not necessarily just engineers that can do that. Uh, I'm not sure if you're ever familiar with Bruce Mao. And yeah. Yeah, I love, you know, I'm very a Canadian, global thought leader in design thinking, and he's a graduate of OCAD. And, uh, when people ask what uh, what do you need to survive, people always say food, you know, shelter, water. But if those things are not designed properly, the shelter won't keep the elements out. So design thinking is sort of really where I am right now in terms of and in my space of engineering and, and the minerals industry. Uh, the minerals industry will actually pro- allow us to move away from a hydrocarbon economy. And I don't think people understand how important the minerals industry is to our future. Uh, do you want to? We're, we're going to come back to that topic later. But do you want to just connect the dots for us? If you say something quite big like that, mm-hmm. that the minerals industry is going to move us away from the carbon economy, how does that work? Um, well, if you think about uh, where does uranium come from, if we want good old nuclear power plants, um, but we ha- when we mine. We have to do it responsibly, and I've been trying to do that over my whole career as an engineer. I take the fact that I'm a professional engineer, 
I think the only value of the engineering license is really a public commitment to ethics. There's many people that graduate from engineering programs and don't bother to get licensed. And I feel that, uh, you know, making that extra commitment uh, to be publicly European, <laughs> um, you know, we're accountable to our peers uh, for our behavior. And so when I was, you know, been on these minerals projects, uh, I've tried to do the right thing and maybe not in the most optimum situation. Uh, projects are kind of crazy. If anybody's done a renovation on their home, there's even shows about the tension it may <laughs> creates in, uh, in families and partnerships and things like that. So, you know, pro projects are, are tough. You're usually putting a group of people who have never worked together before, uh, all, and you're trying to get them aligned in a very ambiguous situation. Often the project isn't defined that well. You're actually defining it because you're doing the design. So that's sort of, you know, the, and, and then you have to make ethical decisions along the way. My guest today is Marilyn Spink. She's a professional engineer and consultant, independent advisor and principal at GS Group. And I'm your host, Mark Franklin. So, Marilyn, let's um, step back. You studied engineering once upon a time. What was the plan? As you graduated from engineering school and you were thinking, oh, I'm going to have this engineering career. Back then, what was the plan and, and then what happened? I sort of have a short-term, two-year plan, maybe a longer-term plan. Because a lot of things are not in your control, but I think the plan is to recognize opportunity. So I think you have to be willing to say yes to lots of different things. So, you know, I ended up after graduation working on an international exchange, uh, working in the far north of Finland in their melt shop. Uh, wow, how did you get that first job? Uh, that was through, um, it was ISD, it was the International Exchange um, for Students in Technical Experience. And um, I actually had a full-time job after graduate, but I said to them, do you mind if I defer and I don't start for, you know, six months? And they were fine because they had a, they were fine with doing that because they saw um, it working at an, an, an international steel company uh, was, was benefit to them because they were a steel company. I was working at Tefasco. After graduation, Defasco, the uh, the steel company. Yes, our strength is well, our product is steel. Our strength is people, which used to dominate yes. the Hamilton yes. landscape yep. until later yep. times. And then uh, at that time, there was what we would call a disruptive technology. Being it was actually a huge disruption to the steel industry. We didn't call it that at that time, but um, integrated steel makers were making this hot band steel at about 27 man-hours per ton. That was a great benchmark, and DeFasco was a world-class. And there was these mini-mills popping up uh, where they would directly couple the melting process with the solidification with the rolling process. It was very uh, siloed processes in the integrated steel makers, but in the mini-mills, they were making this same, exact same product at three man-hours per ton. Wow. So 10% of the cost. So DeFasco formed a joint venture company with Co-Steel, which was a mini, uh, mini mill in um, Whitby, actually, area, Cordes Steel up in that, and the, uh, the Canadian, um, actually, the inventor of the mini mill was Canadian, Jerry Heffernan, 
and we did this joint venture in Kentucky and I was invited to join that team and start that project up. How far into your engineering career was that, getting to go to Kentucky and do a big project like that? That was about two, three years in. So that's an amazing opportunity yeah. for an early career engineer to to spearhead a, a pretty big project like that. Yeah, and there was actually three of us um, uh, that uh, they offered that job to uh, because I think they saw that we were high potential employees. You know, I kind of had taken the step to kind of have the courage to say, oh, yeah, can I join you six months later? I want to go to Finland. So I think they, they understood that I really had a hunger to learn. You eventually moved on to uh, a well-known engineering employer, Hatch. How did that transition happen? Um, my family was, uh, my sisters were having babies at the time and I was the aunt that was heavy in her career and I wanted to come back to Canada. I, I liked Kentucky, but it's, it's a nice place to visit, but I didn't necessarily want to stay there. And, uh, once the plant was up and running in Kentucky, it was kind of steady state, nothing exciting happening anymore. So I was kind of, was bit by that capital project bug where I really loved building things and that's what Hatch was doing at the time. So they actually recruited me. It was an opportunity to come back to Canada and I worked uh, and I helped the Sault Ste. Marie. So the steel plant there, it was Algoma Steel at the time. They were an integrated steel producer and wanted to implement the mini mill technology. So we, I was the engineering manager for that project to implement a, a mini mill at their site. And it was really risky because it was financed on junk bonds, the union was involved, they, but they saw it necessarily to do for their survival if they didn't modernize. And I'm happy to say they're still in business and that mini mill was something that actually saved the plant from closing. So you developed these, um, the skills and knowledge with mini mills, which took you through the first couple of transitions in your career. There's a number of other turning points, Marilyn, in your career story. Do you want to take us on a quick tour? Quick tour. Of, of a number of increasingly responsible positions. Um, so you've had a lot of turning points there. Do you want to just take us through it, uh, focusing on a couple of key turning points? Well, I want to bring it back to opportunity. You have to recognize opportunity. So I have to say that um, having children actually was a benefit for me uh, because it took uh, um, I took time off. Uh, you know, the, it, it wasn't a year at the time with my first child, but it gave you a chance to sort of get off the gerbil wheel and and actually think about what is it that I want to do. Uh, and what am I loving about what I did? It actually gave you time to reflect and be mindful as much as, um, as so I, I actually, you know, I think it's wonderful and I wish all people could do that, kind of just pause in their career and think about strategically and, and, and what they can do in the next step. So I was um, offered when one of my children just starting kindergarten, SNC Lavalin. So there, all the people that I'd worked with at Hatch had been pulled away to do this huge project at SNC Lavalin, and they said we need Marilyn, and so they called me, and um, and I wasn't prepared to actually go back to work full time. Project work is very very tough. Uh, and it's a grind, uh, but I love it because it's so busy, the days just fly by. But I said to them, I, I'll come back part-time. That was what I was willing to do, and so they actually allowed me to come back part-time. So I negotiated. I was the engineering manager on a part-time basis for a very large project in Madagascar. 
and then I kind of had a chance to test that and how it was working with, um, you know, the work-life balance. And um, so, wait, did you move to Madagascar no, for that, or all, manage it from I've here? Spent, I've spent my entire career in the mining industry, living in Toronto, because Toronto's the kind of mining capital of the world. And after these steel industry projects, I was kind of getting pulled into the mining industry mid-career, I would say. And then I had an opportunity to take on a full-time role much larger role for the project. It was $4.25 billion, and I agreed to do that because I felt that I had managed the part-time really well and I was kind of itching a little bit to do more. So it allowed me to sort of ease back in and I ended up working for uh, full-time for the remainder of the project. It was uh, a very unique country, a very unique project, a not a, a you know, developing country, unique ecosystem, lot of environmental concerns uh, and you know I ended up ruffling a few feathers I would say uh, because my job was to make sure that the right eyes were on technical information and, uh, and I ended up um, you know calling in the environmental manager constantly um, and I was getting a lot of pressure why are you doing that it's eating my budget you know because there's competing interests we want to get the job done but well, do we want to make sure that we're still within our permitting limits of our air emissions and some of the modeling we've done? So um, I ended up having a meeting. It came to a bit of a pinpoint, and um, I ended up having a meeting with the project manager, and I said, I want to do the right thing. And he actually agreed, very supportive guy. So we actually had the environmental manager report directly to the project manager. It wasn't under engineering anymore because that was the priority, so it wasn't eating up the budget. So anyways, it was a... It's a good example of, mm -hmm. of technology stewardship, a topic that I, I do mm -hmm. want to touch on with you, of being a good steward for projects like huge projects that are, are mining projects. So can you take us into that, just that dilemma a tiny bit, where on the one hand, let's do the right thing, this project is going to have emissions and we want to comply with what, whatever the standards are, yet on the other hand, we want to be efficient and do things in the most cost-efficient manner possible. And you could see that in a project like this, these two needs kind of tension. trade off. There's yeah. a tension between yeah. them. Yeah. And so how do we consistently do the right thing? Well, that's sort of what moved me kind of to the next stage of my career is that I kind of took a step back. And there's only so much you can do once the design is sort of been set, you're really mitigating and treating symptoms at that time. And so that's where I started looking at boards and whether there's a, there's a technical people actually on boards. When I looked at the boards, it was people that often, if there was a technical person, very much someone that was operating a plant at a steady state. And I liken it to you would never expect someone who was maintaining a home shoveling the driveway, doing the laundry, washing floors, uh, cutting the grass, that maintained the house, uh, to actually have the skill set and understand the nuances of designing, constructing, you know, building a house. And so that's sort of where I started moving a little bit more uh, so towards board advisory and um, working with a sort of leadership to set the project off uh, on the right foot in the first place. So, for example... We always talk about community engagement. Uh, mines are often, there's no mines in downtown Toronto, but you know, often mines are in remote locations and they should build wealth for the community. So if you're developing a mine, why not carve off the infrastructure of the power plant, of the water treatment plant, and actually create separate projects? So you're actually reducing um, the capital cost for the mine owner, and then they have a contracting relationship with maybe a first 
nation or indigenous uh, business that owns the water treatment plant. So they can design the water treatment plant for their own community and then the mine is one of their customers. But there's not that type of design thinking happen and that's sort of what I'm I'm kind of moving towards now. Or the energy. Uh, I'm tired of seeing power lines going over or infrastructure being built uh, for the mine, but the Emmett community is still very isolated. So there's, I think, some, if we're looking at sort of more a vision and a purpose of the mine, it's not profit at all costs anymore. My right? guest today is Marilyn Spink. She's a professional engineer and also consultant, independent advisor and principal at GS Group. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. Marilyn, so you were just moving your career story mm -hmm. from these um, leadership roles, management and leadership roles, to governance, trying to, to get one step ahead mm -hmm. of this and implement the design thing into projects themselves. So is that where the career story comes to? Is that the, as we finish that part of the story off, I know you've been doing a few other really interesting things with scientists in the school and with PEO itself. Mm -hmm. So what are those roles? I've done, you know, I'm sitting on some boards and you can't just all of a sudden expect to be on a large, you know, um, public board right away so just like your own career if you're looking at a governance and board career you start small so I started the small not-for-profit and that actually was my child's daycare and we weren't serving the needs of the community I didn't feel that that was fair uh, you know you, if you had to put your child on the waiting list um, before they were born to get in um, so and I felt that the board was working far too hard I the reason I needed child care was because I had a full-time job I didn't need another one on top of it so I convinced and influenced the um, parents who sit on the board that we needed to move away from a working board model to an advisory board model and to hire an executive director um, so that we could get our elevate ourselves to be more just the oversight role and that was so empowering and we did it and we hired a beautiful just a lovely woman who was an executive director and she had the energy to expand the program to feed the needs of the community so when I saw what I could do at that level of leadership that inspired me to sort of move on to other boards uh, so I was sat on the national not-for-profit organization uh, scientists in school they have actually reached over 10 million Canadian children in terms of science outreach. They're blowing up the stereotype of what a scientist is, which I think is important because I think we need science literacy in our society. And then I have received a public appointment um, with the Government of Ontario uh, to sit on the governing body for Professional Engineers Ontario. And, and for I've listeners made, who might not know, yes. that's the regulator in the engineering prof profession that yeah. grants licenses to people to practice. Yes, because it's a regulated profession, and we're going through unprecedented change right now. So some of the things that I've done earlier in my board career are coming. Um, you know, I'm honing those skills. Mm. So, uh, you know, I'm a student of life, lifelong learning. Right? Fascinating career story. Just before we move on to the next topic, if listeners are curious about becoming a board member, saying starting small as you just gave us the example, what do you think the benefits are, you know, to try, so many people have never done that before and getting on a board is a really fascinating experience. What are the benefits for, for personally and professionally? Well, you can really influence. You can influence and make larger changes when you have differing voices in leadership positions. Uh, and, the, and, the, and I think you can really affect your community. Um, I agree, you know, you have grassroots, but ultimately there's people that are 
controlling budgets and controlling strategic direction of where the organization is going. And, you know, it really disheartened me. In 2016, I was the only female PN on a board of 24 people governing our profession. And so a friend of mine and myself said we wanted to change that. So we reached out to a bunch of women PNGs that we know and we actually um, encouraged them to run and we told them you're probably going to lose but um, they you know but they'll change the conversation and we ended up having eight women run and five were elected we've got quite a few uh, women on PEO council now and it's just shifted the conversation to um, it's different it's not so siloed necessarily and we've got had two female chairs in a row um, I think it's actually been good for our profession. Probably moving in the same direction as many other professions to try and, and get more diverse voices in at that leadership level. Yeah, and, and I have to say the engineering profession is lagging terribly. We, we look like dinosaurs. Law is 50-50. Medicine is 50-50 or more than 50-50. Business, uh, you know, MBA graduates, and for some reason, engineering is is um, is not seen. And when engineers design the physical world that we all live in, we need the profession to actually represent the society that it served. And there, I'm sure you've heard about design bias and things like that. So there's, um, you know, seat belts were it's not seat belts, sorry, airbags. The first generation airbags killed women because. The all-male design team who did the testing never thought to put a female crash test dummy. They put a male crash test dummy. And so we have sometimes assumptions because we're all biased, right? We have to do this together. I actually know right? a woman who died from an airbag. And it was that she was just a small, a small stature sitting mm -hmm. very close to the steering wheel. Small fender bender. Died. Yeah. Yeah. And what about if you're pregnant. Yeah. Right. So yeah, so and there's lots of things that so we need we need all of society to be in profession and we need to do this together to sort of get to the finish line together. Um, Marilyn Spink with just a, a, a couple of minutes left, I want to bring the conversation to the notion of technology stewardship. Mm -hmm. um, you and I were at an engineering games lab event and the big emphasis now is on ethical technology stewardship. You alluded to this earlier in our interview, and you've seen it now in, in the steel industry, in the mining industry. So just to orient listeners, what, what does technology stewardship mean to you? Well, I know that there is a technology stewardship definition that the Engineering Change Lab uses. But I actually, I think they say, you know, that technology is used um, to benefit. I actually think we should say technology is designed to benefit. Um, I think we can use design thinking to uh, think macroethically and microethically. And I think right now engineers um, often look microethically. They look in sort of their little silo, their little world. So if I was going to use an example, and I hate using the bridge design because it's engineers do so much more than bridges, but I'll use it just because it's something people can maybe uh, connect with. Uh, the bridge you know, an engineer's been asked to design a bridge. The microethics might make, make sure that it's, you know, good materials, you know, that it lasts the life uh, that was it, the design life. Uh, low maintenance, uh, not costing a lot of money, um, not using actually, you know, counterfeit materials or things like that. But the macroethics might be actually thinking, well, where is this bridge? Does it service the community? It, we've been asked to do it because there's a pulp mill 
or a paper mill or logging roads or whatever, but maybe we should actually think about whether it services the community that continues to be isolated. Maybe we should actually think about relocating this bridge to, to service the community better. So that's sort of more of the macro ethics that I that I think engineers need and must start. We're we're at the pointy end of implementation implementation of technology, and you know some of the existential things we're facing with our climate change. A lot of it has to do with you know the burning of uh, fossil fuels, and uh, you know there's uh, engineers are very 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 much involved with that. The, the last question on this topic, the bridge example is is uh, great. Thanks for sharing that. So now we have many engineers and others working in technology, and especially early career people. I'm finding more and more they're looking to do the right thing. They want meaningful and purposeful work, and they want their work to be doing the right thing to improve the world that we live in. How can we get everybody to take this on? How can we communicate and influence people at all levels of an organization so that in their daily work they feel like they have the, the voice, the conditions to make the right call? So yeah, the, I think it's, a, it's such a complex issue and I don't think there's just one answer, but I, I'm seeing a sea change of people all pushing at pressure points in this system that we're in. I think we need to engage with business. One thing that I'm working with right now is um, a collection of actually women. It's called the Artemis Collective, and it's uh, we're all working in the mining industry, and we're trying to shift the mining industry to be more sustainable. Uh, there's something called B Corp. I think that graduates, uh, people looking at careers, if you want to work for a company that is not profit at all costs, it has a purpose, and work for companies that are B Corp. If you're an entrepreneur become a B Corp. Um, and listeners can look that up. B, yeah. B for beneficial, yeah. right? And there's yeah. a movement more in the U.S. than in Canada, but B Corp is a really interesting I know a couple engineering firms that are B Corp here in Canada. Um, and the UN Sustainable Development Goals, I think those can kind of be our macroethics lens. You know, if we look microethically, we might cover a couple of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. But if we actually look macroethically and apply design thinking, we can actually cover all of them. Nice. So, Marilyn Spink, thanks for joining us here. You've, t you've told us a, a little bit of the twists and turns in your own career. Um, last question, if you reflect on, on your own story and the things that you've learned about managing your career and life, because you've shared some work-life issues, uh, what's one thing that you've learned that you can share with listeners? Don't we all have work-life <laughs> issues, right? Um, one thing that I would uh, share is that I think engineers don't understand necessarily how differently we think compared and I I think that we need to find our voices to influence I kind of wish I'd found my voice earlier in my career uh, if that's I think Toastmasters helps uh, I think engineers not thinking that they sort of know everything sometimes we're we are we are the engineers there's sort of an arrogance that's that's built in at least when I went to school um, but I think engineer, every engineer should have a sociologist as a best friend because I think we provide things for humanity, but yet we don't understand necessarily the science of humanity. Great advice. Marilyn Spink, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. 
You're listening to Career Buzz on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide at CIUT.FM. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. Before continuing on with today's show, I want to let listeners know about the archive of Career Buzz inspiring career stories. Go to careercycles.com and click podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Have a listen to Pam Philman. Young Jun Yoon talking about career programs within organizations. Also hear Tim Clark on adapting business model canvas for career management. And hear mini-series within Career Buzz called The Thoughtful Technosapien, most re- recent episode with Franz Newland on ethical space engineering. Go to careercycles.com, click podcast, or subscribe to the Career Buzz podcast on your favorite podcast app. At 66... David Sorensen started his Encore career by completing a master's degree in counseling. Now, after career number one as an ordained chaplain and career number two as a counselor, David shares his journey and transition toward balancing life, work, and calling. Here's my interview with David Sorensen. David Sorensen, welcome to the show today. Welcome to Career Buzz. Thanks, Mark. Nice to be here. So what are you liking these days about the way your life and your career is unfolding? Well, it's... uh... Uh, it's you know it's this figuring out this life work balance you know it's an ongoing thing i like the uh, i like the shift i'm making it gives me i get to continue to uh, i think try to make a contribution and be of service to folks while at the same time really trying to be very intentional about carving out time for myself for my family and um being able to give more time there than sometimes I have in the past. So what are what are the different hats that you wear or the roles that you play? I hear there's a family role, so that's an important one. Um, what are all the different hats that you wear? So my, my wife and I have been married 40 plus years, and uh, so I'm husband, father, grandfather, and then along with that, um, outside the home, I work as a psychotherapist in my Encore career and have been doing that for a few years and then have uh, some other involvement I've, I've been teaching have been doing that last year going to transition out of that so again so that i have more time with the family but uh trying to stay involved in the community in different ways and we should just say the teaching is relevant we're on a career related show career buzz so can you just say you you've been teaching related to career development what that what that role was Yes, uh, in the graduate school uh, counseling department, I was teaching career development to to future clinicians who uh, came in with maybe thinking of focusing on career as a low priority and hopefully are having a change of mind and heart as a result of that class. Nice. So, you know, the two kind of professional roles, the psychotherapist and teaching at the university, um, what, what skills and strengths would you say that you've drawn on to be successful? Well, first and foremost, just really paying attention to trying to listen to where people are at, what's uh, on their hearts and minds, and trying to appreciate what their values are, what's important to them, and addressing their needs, whether it's the student coming into the class saying, this is what I want to learn, or in the, in the counseling office, listening to what the person is saying their needs are, their their priorities are, and focusing on what they're looking for. So listening and, listening and focusing, two key skills that seem to overlap between the teaching at the university and the psychotherapy practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Listening is uh, job one. Yeah. Probably an important um, strength as a, a, hus- a husband, a father, and a grandfather, too. 
I'd imagine. <laughs> well, listening is still job one uh, there as well. And sometimes, interestingly enough, it's harder to listen there. I find myself getting pulled by my own, my own agenda in different ways. And I'm just reflecting, I have a 19-year-old granddaughter who's just started college, and I listen to her, and I find myself, oh, sometimes uh, not doing as good a job of listening as I'd like to and constantly learning and relearning to focus on uh, where she's coming from and trying to appreciate that she sees the world a little differently than I do. My guest today is David Sorensen on Career Buzz. We're talking about retirement and your next adventure. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. David Sorensen, what, what about the transition that you're in now? You're in uh, an important transition given demographics across North America. It's an important transition many are going through. Um, how's it been going for you in this important retirement transition? What what word do you even use to describe what you're going through? So I was able to uh, retire from my full-time employment and uh, actually pursue my encore career. Uh, I went back to school, got a degree in counseling, and now I'm pursuing this on a part-time basis. So for me, it's been a transition from full-time employment and something I had done uh, 35 years, and then uh, being able to transition out of that and sort of retool to do something else I've always wanted to do, and uh, not having to do that full-time, but I can do this part-time. So the transition is, for me has been about uh, really looking closely at what is still important to me, what I still want to do, and stay engaged and alive. For me, it's just all about being alive, as fully alive as possible, in the way that most makes the most sense for me, at least at this time in my life. Engaged and alive. I think many would agree with those two words, a nice way to put it. Can you help listeners understand the age of the different things even that you've mentioned so far? You talked about this kind of counseling career as an encore career. At what age did you start that, and then where are you now so listeners can kind of gauge where you are in the journey? Right. I was able to retire at age 64 from my full-time career, get a degree in counseling at the age of 66, and I'm now... 69. So <laughs> I'm at a time in life where it's, I sometimes look in the mirror and say, David, what are you doing at, the, at this age? But it, I don't know. It, it keeps me alive. It just gives me an opportunity to use, I think, the gifts that I have and make a connection with people in a way that's important to me and I think makes a difference in, in the lives of others. And that just seems to be central to who I am. How was it to uh, do this degree in your 60s? It's fascinating. And, and, Absolutely and, fascinating. And your peers, uh, were you uh, among other 60-year-olds or were your peers a bit different in age? A bit different in age. And I guess, uh, you know, sometimes uh, age does have its, uh, the seniority, you know, that kind of comes with that does have its benefits. But I absolutely loved it because being around folks that were, you know, the ages of my, my children and just being able to interact with them in a very professional way. And it was very life-giving for me. And now, as you contemplate another transition, what are you thinking about? How are you thinking about this time ahead of you? Well, I, I think what's important to me is to definitely spend time with my family, my wife, maybe do some traveling and just take some time. I mean, I could go fishing if I want to, but I'm not ready to do that. It's balancing life and work and definitely wanting to make more time for life outside of work. One of the things I've learned along the journey that I've been on 
on is that every day's a gift and tomorrow's not promised. So uh, I'm trying to make the most, make the most of today, and also not put off too much uh, longer uh, plans to do some traveling and just have some fun. So travel and fun. I've heard some describe this phase of life as as trying to seek the next adventure, and just to use that word to seek the next adventure. And, and you know, maybe one thinks of travel in the context of adventure. I think others think about it as new ways to engage, to to do work, paid or or volunteer work. What's your reaction to the um, seeking the next adventure way to phrase Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Well, I think that that is absolutely it. The adventure, for me, the adventure is both internal and external. Internal in terms of uh, hobbies that gives me opportunities to do things I've always wanted to do and that didn't have the time and the resources not until now. But external in terms of definitely traveling. Done a fair amount of traveling over the years, but more employment related. So now to be able to do the traveling, just pursue my own and my wife's interests. Uh, actually going down the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon is on my bucket list. I, I I don't know if I'll get my wife to do that with me, but uh, it's something that I'm very much at the top of my to-do list. So that's literally the next adventure, the Colorado River and Grand Canyon. You know, men seem to do this thing of seeking the next adventure or retirement different than women. What are you noticing with yourself and maybe any peers, um, especially men, and how you're noticing men are dealing with this kind of change and transition Uh, uniquely and potentially different than women? The men I know of who are in the same, roughly the same age that I am and going through this similar transition from full-time employment to something else, what I'm noticing is that they want to stay engaged and be able to use the skills that they've developed over the years. They just don't want to sit on the shelf just because something has come along called retirement. And, and I think that's true of me as well. That's why I don't even like to use the re- word retirement. It's, it's not retiring from life. It's wanting to be even more fully alive. And so for me, it's, it's a lifelong learning process and wanting to continue to be learning, expanding my horizons, uh, whether it's learning new skills, new knowledge, or just new experiences, uh, kind of pushing the envelope and looking for something new. So in, in addition to travel, do you have that something new or what are some of the possibilities you're considering to use your skills and engage in lifelong learning? Well, a lot of my work over the years has been relational work, uh, working with people sometimes in crisis, very often in crisis uh, of different kinds. And so emotionally and mentally, that can be rather draining. So I'm really enjoying being able to develop hobbies that take me in entirely different directions. So woodworking, for example, developing my workshop. And uh, my wife has two pieces of furniture for me to make for her, which is great for me because I get to use that uh, hobby, put it to some good use here in the home. It's, it's developing a side of my, my experience. It's giving me an opportunity to develop areas of myself that my career just didn't develop, more hands-on skills and instead of relational interpersonal skills. And David Sorensen, just coming back to the question of how men and women do this transition, you know, you've just described some things that are good activities that give you a chance to use skills in a different way, hands-on, for example. And somehow women seem to be more connected to uh, community and things that are engaging others. And I, what seems to be the worry that many men have, and maybe women on their behalf, is the potential for isolation. And work has been, for many, not all, the, the source of, of community and connection. 
And without that, and without having been very intentional to nurture relationship, one might find oneself isolated. What's your perspective on that? Absolutely. I think you put your finger right on it. So the challenge is, I think, for us as men to really be proactive in looking for ways to nurture relationships and to sustain or create communities, now communities outside of work. And I think that that's a challenge. So like for myself to invite another fellow to lunch, that's not work related. It's just something to do just for the social connection. It's uh, for me, something new to say, okay, this is as men, we can do this. It doesn't always have to be, let's have lunch and talk about the job. So how many, uh, how many lunch meetings do you have lined up in the next little while? I've got three out there waiting for me to follow up and uh, actually make the telephone call. Sometimes I make the initial contact and then life kind of gets in the way and the lunch doesn't happen for various reasons. So I've got some catching up to do. If somebody is, is considering, you know, getting help through this transition, like lots of transitions, we have people who do career development and career counseling to help people through different work and, and employment transitions. What help, if any, have you sought out and what would you advise others to seek out if they were concerned about dealing with this transition effectively? So because I'm involved in a faith community, I noticed that in the church, there's opportunities for people my age group, at least in the church that I belong to, opportunities to get together with other folks and even talk about uh, what are the challenges and the opportunities that we face at this time in our life. I'm thinking about for myself, one of the things I've done is I've started to look to other men who are retired, but who are older than I, and I'm looking to them actually for some guidance. Uh, one of the luncheons that is waiting for me to follow through on is with a gentleman who's probably about 10 years older than me. He's been retired from the same kind of work that I did. And my goal is just to sit down with him and, and ask, how are you doing this? What are you doing in your retirement and, or in this stage of your life? And just thinking I'm going to uh, find out how other folks a little farther down the road are, are handling this. And it seems like it's relatively new for you. You were teaching and you still have this practice. Do you call yourself like newly retired now or using some other language and is that just recently or, or do you call that from three or four years ago when you did the degree program? So I just say I'm in my encore career and when I say encore career people look kind of surprised and then they kind of smile and they kind of get it. So I've noticed that that's been a good way for me to describe what I'm doing. And it's interesting. I mean it uses the word career you know, which I think has a very broad definition. I think others use it more narrowly, but I would say it's the full expression of who you are and how you want to be in the world. And it's our working definition here at Career Cycles. And to then say it's an encore career, and that's a term I know, and it maybe is used a bit more in the U.S. than Canada, but I think I've heard it in both countries. So, and when you talked about the guy who you were seeing and you said was the work that we've both done, you haven't mentioned, I think, the work that you had done prior to the counseling degree and the counseling work. Do you, can you just say a bit about that? Sure. So I was a chaplain in the military and in the civilian sector for 35 years. After I graduated from seminary, I quickly found out that the parish was not my calling, but chaplaincy was. So I worked in a chaplaincy as a chaplain in all kinds of settings, military corrections, medical centers, long-term care facilities. That was the, the way my career unfolded. So one can f connect the dots from the chaplaincy work to the counseling work. You can see how those, those pieces connect, right? Yes. And, and, and I guess you, you know, that, that was one 
link from where you were to where you you're coming now. How much does does faith? And you mentioned faith community, and you're involved in your faith community, and it is a, it is a form of community, and people have a chance to to connect there. How much does faith play a role in helping people deal with this transition? Well, I think it's very important, uh, you know, in terms of whatever whatever is at the core of one's being, in terms of what gives meaning and purpose in life, and however they define that for themselves. So for me, it's uh, absolutely defines who I am. And so for me, it's looking for ways to express my faith and use my faith to guide me. And, and you know, some, sometimes in the career development field, we hear the word calling, not necessarily with a religious connotation, but sometimes in a more just in a very general, broad sort of way. And I think at this stage of life, the challenge can be, how does a person define or redefine the sense of calling that they have had that is that has guided them along their life journey and so for me that sense of calling is i can't say enough about how important that is but the challenge for me anyway is just how do i define it now at this time in my life and how does that look for me in the future sometimes the future uh, what is um i think it's yogi berra is attributed to him uh, who said uh, the future ain't what it used to be yeah <laughs> so it's like yeah sometimes our at least, you know, I find myself wondering what my future will be. I think out a couple of years, and then I, and it becomes very nebulous and un, unclear to me. It's like, wow, it really is a journey of faith. My guest today is David Sorensen on Career Buzz here. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. Uh, David, just with a, a couple of minutes left, I, I find that last comment about, you know, you just don't know. And there's, you know, you, you have a job and there's some clarity about it. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm teaching or I'm doing this job at this company or this organization. And there's more freedom and flexibility. And, you know, some people just don't tolerate that ambiguity very well. You've got this ingredient called faith that helps, it seems. How best do people deal with the ambiguity that's in this kind of open-ended, encore career? I think my sense about this is that it comes back to relationships and community and having a place where we feel connected, where we feel safe, where we feel secure. And for me, that's in relationships, whether it's with my wife, my family, with my God, with my faith community. That's the ultimate resource, I think at least for me, when dealing with all the ambiguity and uncertainties of life. Nicely put. David, one other aspect of, of retirement or encore career is the financial aspect. And people do need to take into account how they're going to deal with the financial needs of their futures. How's that going for you? Well, uh, fortunately, I'm, I'm in a good place financially where um, because of my retirement from the military and then in the civilian world, I'm, uh, I'm in a good place financially. It certainly is so important and is such a challenge, can be such a challenge. I wasn't able to continue my education until finally the financial resources were there. So it's probably why I was 64 that I could go back to school. So yes, learning to live with the limitations of the financial realities is uh, inescapable. It's absolutely something that we all face. Finally, if, if there was one thing you could share uh, David, now that you've been, th you've told us about the transition from chaplaincy to to counseling, and now to your next adventure in your encore career. And if there was one thing you could share with listeners, listeners maybe going through their own uh, transition, or maybe somebody that they know or care about, um, what's one thing that you've learned from your own journey that you can share with listeners? 
well, two things come to my, my mark as I hear you ask that question. One is life is what happens while we're planning to do something else. So it's being open to the unplanned challenges that come along, but also open to embracing those challenges as opportunities, the unscheduled happenings that maybe ends up closing one door, but also has the possibility of opening another door. So being able to embrace all of that and then um, trusting that if we, uh, well, the other part for me is continuing to listening. You know, we talked about listening before, but listening to ourselves, listening to our heart, our soul, listening to what's happening inside of us as we are changing and developing over time and staying in touch with ourselves so that that inner guiding light can lead us forward with some authenticity and some integrity and we can be true then to what's most important nice. to us. Nicely put, David Sorensen. Thank you so much for joining us here on Career Buzz. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to Career Buzz, Canada's unique radio conversation that empowers lives, enriches careers, and energizes organizations on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. You can find out more about me at careercycles.com. If you have any comments on today's show, please email me. It's mark with a K at careercycles.com. Thanks to our guests today, David Sorensen and Marilyn Spink. Technical production today was by Kat Klippenstein. An MP3 of today's show is available from the podcast link at careercycles.com. Catch Career Buzz every Wednesday, 11 a.m. till noon here on CIUT. That's it for today's version of Career Buzz. Thanks for listening.